We're going to read the first 32 verses. It says in 2 Samuel chapter 22, Then David spoke or sang to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord had delivered him from the hand of all of his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And he said, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. The God of my strength in whom I will trust my shield and the horn of my salvation. My stronghold and my refuge, my savior, you save me from violence. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from my enemies. When the waves of death surrounded me, the floods of ungodliness made me afraid. The sorrows of Sheol surrounded me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord and I cried out to my God. He heard my voice from his temple and and my cry entered his ears. Then the earth shook and trembled. The foundations of heaven quaked and were shaken because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Coals were kindled by it. He bowed the heavens or bowed the heavens also and came down with darkness under his feet. He rode upon a cherub and flew and he was seen upon the wings of the wind. He made darkness canopies around him, dark waters and thick clouds of the skies. From the brightness before him, coals of fire were kindled. The Lord thundered from heaven, and the Most High uttered his voice. He sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning bolts, and he vanquished them. Then the channels of the sea were seen. The foundations of the world were uncovered. At the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of the breath of his nostrils, he sent from above, he took me, he drew me out of many waters, he delivered me from my strong enemy, From those who hated me, for they were too strong for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He delivered me because he delighted in me. The Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands. He has recompensed me, for I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his judgments were before me, and as for his statutes, I did not depart from them. I was also blameless before him, and I kept myself from my iniquity. Therefore, the Lord has recompensed me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his eyes. With the merciful, you will show yourself merciful. With a blameless man, you will show yourself blameless. With the pure, you will show yourself pure. And with the devious, you will show yourself shrewd. You will save the humble people and your eyes are on the haughty that you may bring them down. For you are my lamp, O Lord. The Lord shall enlighten my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop. By my God I can leap over a wall. As for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is proven. 
He is a shield to all who trust in him. For who is God except the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? David wrote many songs of praise to the Lord. This one is included at the end of 2 Samuel. It is repeated almost in its identical form here in Psalm 18. The song is a song of praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. And remember what I've already told you, that 2 Samuel isn't necessarily in chronological order. There seems to be some evidence that the compiler of the history in First and Second Samuel, as he was talking about the life and times of David, add this song. The song is a song of praise, and it can be broken into or separated into two broad themes. Thanksgiving for being saved from his enemies in verses 1 through 32, and then thanksgiving for being set over his enemies in verses 33 through 51. We are going to look at thanksgiving for being set over his enemies. And this particular portion, I've taken an outline from Harold Wilmington, and his outline goes as follows, and I've chosen to adopt his outline because it's so practical. He talks about God's protection in verses 2 through 7, God's power in verses 8 through 16, God's provision in verses 17 through 25, God's perfect justice in verses 26 through 28, and then God's proven dependability in verses 29 through 32. Protection, power, provision, perfect justice, proven dependability, and it's going to all be in the context of deliverance from enemies. When did David write this song? Again, scholars are are divided. Some think that David wrote this after Nathan's visit to David when David suggested building the temple. In other words, he says, I want to build you a temple. And the Lord said, David, it's not going to happen. Your son is going to build the temple, but you're not going to build the temple. Others have suggested that David wrote this song late in life. Others suggest he wrote it early in life. Chuck Swindoll believes that he quite possibly wrote this song as the final song of his life. The song had a tremendous impact on the Jewish people and Jews in every age. As a matter of fact, it was part of what was known as the Haptarah. And I don't expect you to know what that word means, but it was a Hebrew word that meant lessons from the prophets. This was one of the Psalms that was appointed to be read in the synagogue of the Jews on the Sabbath in conjunction with Deuteronomy chapter 32, a passage from the law. As a matter of fact, this Psalm was read by what was known as the Sephardim, the Spanish Jews. The Spanish Jews would read this particular song on the Sabbath day of the Passover celebration. It was intended to remind the Jewish people of God's sovereign ability to intervene in in, in the life of of his covenant people. The more we learn about David, the more we learn about ourselves. 
As a matter of fact, if you followed with me throughout the book of 1 Samuel and, and you followed in 2 Samuel that, that, that David clearly is called a man after God's own heart, but he is filled with this mixed passion, if you will. As a matter of fact, as, as we've studied David, he's not this alabaster statue with a golden halo by any stretch of the imagination. He is a man. Imperfect. Passionate. And his life is light and shadow. There are nuances in his character. But if we've learned anything... We've learned that he loves the Lord. And there's a reason why he's called the man after God's own heart. It isn't simply because he longs for and desires the things of God. He is profoundly aware of his own wickedness and sin. And his own need for grace and mercy. He loves the Lord and he makes himself available to the Lord. He relinquishes the right to his own life, the right to his own career, the right to his own talents. He's a poet, he's a prophet, and he's a king. And David learned to trust the Lord in what most would consider impossible circumstances. It's pretty easy to trust the Lord when everything is going right. When your children are safe and secure, when your family is happy and healthy, when the economy is good, when you have a good job, when you know that the bills are being paid, when the cupboards are full, it's, it's easy to trust the Lord. But it becomes more difficult when you're facing what looks like an impossible illness or or a major or, or a defining moment in your life that, that is, is creating problems in your life. All of us experience things that become major or life-defining moments. Whether it takes the form of childhood abuse or, or whether it takes the, the, the form of a difficulty in marriage or divorce or death or catastrophic illness or major disappointment. Think about what we've already read and gone through. David has experienced the premature death of children. He has experienced their rebellion. He's experienced his own infidelity and murder. Another major blow that knocked David to his knees was a catastrophic famine that that plagued the land, not where thousands or even tens of thousands, but multiplied tens of thousands of people died. And then there was the ever-present threat of war from neighbors, with sorrows coming from age-old enemies that you and I have know as the Philistines. In chapter 21, David is exhausted. Disappointment, disease, death. It can even make a strong man humble. But I want to point something out to you. David doesn't sing the blues. He's not singing the blues. He's singing a song of adoration and praise. One of the things that becomes important as you look at this song or any song that David wrote when you ask and you answer the question about your own life and your own circumstances, typically you're going to find yourself in a hard time or you're going to find yourself in an easy time. 
For David, this was a time of violence, according to verse 3. This was a a time when torrents of destruction overwhelmed him in verse 5. So David is singing a song, not when everything's coming up roses, but when the world is collapsing. And he was surrounded by frightening foes and powerful enemies. Augustine pointed out, you have enemies. For who can live on this earth without them? Take heed to yourselves. Love them. In no way can the enemy be so hurt by you, by his violence, or as Augustine said, as thou dost hurt thyself if thou love him not. In other words, the most harm that you can do to yourself during a time of difficulty is fail to honor God in the circumstance that you find yourself in. And this is what Jesus said. Jesus said, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who despitefully use you. And so David, look what it says in verse 1, speaks to the Lord or sings to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord had delivered him from the hand of all his enemies. I want to draw particular attention for you to the word enemy. Because the word enemy or enemies can refer either to people or to trials or to tests. And we know that the Bible says that we have three great enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. The Bible also says we have three great champions, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father has overcome the world. Jesus has overcome the devil. The Holy Spirit has been given to us so that he lives inside of us. With our three greatest enemies, we have three great champions. When life brings lemons, what did your mother or your grandmother say? Make lemonade. Diamonds are coal, carbon, under intense heat and pressure. My mother would always threaten to give me a lump of coal at Christmas time instead of nuts and candy and apples and oranges. But when life is tough, God is our refuge. He is our security in a world subject to change, just as we sang, the Lord is unchanging. And by the way, how many of you want to have enemies? Yeah, typically people don't go, hey, I'm here and... I just want you to hate my guts. Most people don't do that. But the reality is that when you stand for Jesus, there will be people who stand against you. When you love the truth, people will hate you if they love lies. You know, three people are spoken of in the Bible who nothing bad is ever said of them. You know who those three people are? Excluding Jesus, of course. Joseph, Daniel, and Jonathan, David's friend. Nothing bad is ever said of them. As a matter of fact, when you speak of Joseph or you speak of Daniel and you look at the life of Daniel and you look at the integrity of Daniel and you look at the honesty of Daniel and you look at the goodness and you look at his commitment to God and his commitment to walk in a world that is completely uh, foreign to and estranged from God, 
They wind up throwing Joseph in jail. They wind up throwing Daniel in a lion's den. And of course, the person who was without sin, the Lord Jesus Christ. What happened to Jesus in a world that was committed not to honoring God, but disobeying God? When you stand for Jesus, when you stand for the truth, there will be people who stand against you. Remember what the Bible says, beware when all men speak well of you. You know, it's hard to live life without offending someone at some point. Offenses take many forms and some people become angry with us or bitter with us. And and some people, I know it's shocking and surprising, but sometimes people will actually not only resist you, but even hate you or despise you. I know I'm not talking about you. Because when I look at you, what's not to love? But wicked men and wicked women are not the only enemies we face. You can take your pick. Remember what it says in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2? We've quoted it over and over again. Present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this world, but rather be transformed by the renewing of your mind. There's lots of enemies. Take your pick. Fatigue, exhaustion, anxiety, distress, torment, physical or sexual abuse, loneliness, depression, lack of purpose or direction in your life, distress, torment, physical or sexual addictions, pornography, the death of a loved one. When you think about all of these things, what is your hope of escape? How can you possibly be delivered? Some people side with self or reason or government or friends or family. But some people don't even embrace those things. They just embrace despair. They just simply say, I don't believe in anything and I don't trust in anything. And I don't hope in anything. But for David, the setting of the song celebrates the Lord's deliverance. And that's the point. You see, when you find yourself in trouble, you're going to trust something and someone. But David encourages you and says, let the Lord be your protection. Look what it says in verse 2. And he said, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. The Lord is my rock. And remember what the Bible means when it says rock. It is the place of permanence. It is the place of fortitude. This is the place of stability. And if you are ever in a place of equivocation, of uncertainty, you know how important certainty becomes to you. My fortress, the place where I'm safe, my deliverer. In verse 3 it says, the God of my strength in whom I trust, my shield, the horn of my salvation. In the Old Testament, the horn spoke of Power, And so what he's speaking of is the, the thing that protects me, but also the source of my deliverance or the source or the central, the central location of power, my stronghold and my refuge, my savior, you saved me from violence. And so David begins to pile title after title, attribute after attribute on the person of the Lord God. And in verse 4, he says, I will call upon the Lord. When we were kids, we used to sing this song. I will call upon the Lord 
who is worthy to be praised, so shall I be saved from my enemies. The Lord liveth, and blessed be the rock. I love that song. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. And think about this. When he says, I'm going to call upon the Lord, it's because he knows that he has in the Lord hope. But we live in a world where people say, I will call upon the government. Is that where you're going to place your trust? Does the government sound like a sensible source of deliverance? How about equity? How about human beings? How about money? How about this? How about that? He says, I will call upon the Lord who's worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from my enemies. But I know what you're thinking. It all depends on what your enemy is. If my enemy is poverty, then I need money. If my enemy is uncertainty, then I need certainty or security. But David is going to remind you that no matter what your enemy is, no matter what form your enemy takes, the most reasonable source of deliverance is the Lord himself. Why? David is praising the Lord because of his willingness to hear and answer prayer. Some of you may be trusting your mother and your father. Some of you may be trusting your children. Some of you may be trusting whatever it is that you trust and you call upon them. And they say, hey, I'm sorry, I don't have any, I don't have any answers for you. I don't have a provision for you. David calls on the Lord because he's willing to hear and answer prayer. And what is even more remarkable is God's willingness to hear David when he faces death or grave sorrow or urgent distress. But remember what David says, I will call upon the Lord. And, 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 but it, again, David isn't a person who calls on the Lord only when he's facing a Goliath or only when he's facing Saul or only when he's facing backsliding or only when he's facing the Israel's enemies, only when he's facing Absalom, only when he's facing his own sinful passions. Now think about this for just a moment. David calls on the Lord in the good times and in the bad times, in the daytime and in the nighttime. But some enemies are so fierce and some enemies are so powerful. And some enemies are so persistent that a human being isn't going to be able to help you. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 12, For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them who do evil. You know, a lot of people want to be open to God and they want to cry out to God, but they don't want to abandon their wickedness. They don't want to repent of their sin. They don't want to turn from their circumstances. I will call upon the Lord who's worthy to be praised. Why? I want to ask you a question. Again, for those of you who have been following along in 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, who do you know who was delivered more than David? He's like a deliverance expert. He's experienced God's protection 
time and time and time again. God delivered David from Goliath. God delivered David from Saul. God delivers David from backsliding. God delivers David from the Philistines. God delivers David from his own insanity. God delivers David from Absalom. God delivers David from his own sinful passions. (laughs) No wonder it says... In verse 5, when the waves of death surrounded me, the floods of ungodliness made me afraid. The sorrows of Sheol surrounded me. Sheol is the place of the grave. Sheol is a Hebrew word which which speaks of, of the place or the portal or the gates of death. The sorrows of Sheol. This is David's way of saying, of saying the Lord listens particularly When the waves of death surrounded me, when the floods of ungodliness make me afraid, when the sorrows of Sheol surrounded me. What David is praying and singing is, I'm calling upon the Lord, not when things are the best in my life, but when things are the worst in my life. In verse 7, in my distress, I called upon the Lord. And I know what some of you are thinking because a voice has whispered in your ear. Why do you always cry out to God when things are going bad? And the next time the voice says that to you, you need to quote chapter 22, verse 7. In my distress, I called upon the Lord because I can. I can call on the Lord when things are going bad. I cried out to my God. He heard my voice from his temple and my cry entered his ear. David describes God as a God who, number one, listens when things are not going good. And number two... He listens to our cries and he responds. You know, it's been a long time since my children were very, very small children. And one of the wonderful things about being a grandpa and one of the wonderful things about having grandchildren and reliving the baby experience is hearing a baby's cry. Now, moms, when you hear a baby's cry, there's something, there's like... Something like inside of a mom, when you hear a baby crying, you go, hey, that baby's crying for me. Now, the baby may be wet. The baby might be hungry. The baby might be in pain. The baby might be agitated. And the baby only has one word in the baby's vocabulary. And that takes all kinds of different forms and functions. There's I need you cry, there's a I'm a hungry cry, there's a I'm a wet cry, there's all kinds of cry, but no matter what the cry is, the baby cries and the mom responds. And for some Christians, there's only one kind of cry. It's the cry for help. You know, the philosophers have spoken of a watchmaker God who builds a universe and winds it up and then walks away from his universe. Ancient peoples in every culture and in every location believed in a deity. Some people believed that gods heard them or maybe they didn't hear them or that they would have to make a sacrifice in order to have them hear them. But the Bible speaks of a God who is great and the Bible speaks of a God who has the ability to hear things and respond even to the most minute detail. And this includes not only the ability to hear but a willingness to hear and a willingness to love you. You see, God 
as your heavenly father doesn't just simply listen to your cry, but he listens in such a way that he wants to respond to that cry. Not because he hates you, but because he loves you. In verse 8, it says, Then the earth shook and trembled. The foundations of heaven quaked and were shaken because he was angry. What does this mean? God has the power to shake heaven and earth. And why is he angry? Because God is angry when the saints are at risk. When they're suffering. When they've been persecuted. When they've been isolated. When they've been taken advantage of. As a matter of fact, in verse 9 it says, Smoke went up from his nostrils and a devouring fire from his mouth. Coals were kindled by it. He made darkness canopies around him. Dark waters and thick clouds of of the skies. In other words, when it says in verse 7 and in verse 8 and in verse 9 and in verse 10, it's supposed to lead you with the impression... That God is willing to shake heaven and shake earth. He is willing to move heaven and move earth in order to respond to your cry. That's part of the point. He quakes. The foundation of heaven quakes because he's angry. Smoke went up from his nostril, devouring fire from his mouth. He he bowed the heavens or bowed the heavens also and came down with darkness under his feet. What usually happens when darkness is under your feet? You fall. It's called gravity, right? Have you ever stepped out into nothing hoping that it would catch you? How is it possible that God can travel on nothing? It's not a hindrance or a barrier. See, the the reason why this becomes important to you is because what can keep God from responding to your prayer? Nothing. Except one thing. Your sin. The Bible says sin separates us from God. Sin estranges us from God. It's sin that causes God to hide his face from us. But here's what David says. He rode upon a cherub and flew. The idea is He responds quickly and he was seen upon the wings of the wind. He made darkness canopies around him, dark waters and thick clouds of the skies. From the brightness before him, coals of fire were kindled. The idea being that the presence of God in the circumstance creates a mechanism where all of creation actually has to respond to the problem. The Lord thundered from heaven and the Most High uttered his voice. He sent out arrows and scattered them lightning bolts and he vanquished them then the channels of the sea were seen the foundation of the world were uncovered the rebuke of the Lord the blast of his breath from his nostrils is reminiscent of when the children of Israel were being liberated from Egypt and the nostrils of the Lord blow open the Red Sea in order to allow a passage of deliverance what's the point the point is that in the midst of the trial God is going to use all of his resources in order to make a provision. And that provision continues in verse 17. So again, we go from God's protection and God's power to God's provision. Look what it says in verse 17. He sent from above. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. Verse 18. He delivered me. 
from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too strong for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support in verse 19. He also brought me out of a broad place. He delivered me because he delighted in me. Now think about this for just a moment. What does David sing? The, he sings, the enemy confronted David in the day of calamity. In other words, this is a bad day. This is the day where things look really, really difficult. Human enemies, natural catastrophes, physical misfortunes, it doesn't matter. David is saying, look, God will make a provision whether your enemy is a human enemy, whether, you're, whether your enemy is a natural catastrophe, whether, you're, whether, you're, whether your problem is a physical mis- misfortune. Here's the point. The Lord is able to save. And here's David's point. If God is able to save me, then he's able to save you. So what is he saying? David employs poetic imagery and then he describes a series of salvation. Now remember what salvation means. It isn't just simply deliverance from sin. It can mean deliverance from the enemy, whatever that enemy happens to be, whether human or, or a natural catastrophe or a physical misfortune or misfortune. And, and so he says, the Lord rescues him from drowning in deep waters in verse 17. Now, you may not be physically drowning in a pool of water, but that's what debt can feel like, huh? It feels like you can't come up for air. You feel overwhelmed. The Lord rescues him from powerful enemies, from foes who hate him, who are too strong for him in verse 14. The Lord upholds him and provides support in the face of disaster and calamity in verse 19. The Lord delivers him and leads him. By the way, when you're in an unsafe situation, what do you want more than anything? To be safe, right? I just want to be safe. And so when it says in verse 20, he also brought me to a broad place. (laughs) That's the place where you don't go over the edge. If you're feeling like you're right next to a ledge and you're about to drop off the cliff, what do you want? You want a lot of room in order to be able to negotiate. And the reason why the Lord protects him And the reason why the Lord becomes a provision for him, look in verse 20. He delivered me because he delighted in me. That should come as a shock and as a surprise to some of you. What? The Lord delights in David? The Lord delights in an adulterer. The Lord delights in a murderer. The Lord delights in this wicked person. Yes, the Lord delights in David. Why? Because God doesn't see him simply as a sinner, but as someone that he made and that someone he loves and someone that he's redeemed and someone that he's reconciled. In other words, the Lord God is going to go to an enormous circumstance in order to redeem David. Through a series of historical circumstances, David's children's 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 children to the 14th generation is going to find herself pregnant 
in Bethlehem, and she's going to give birth to a baby, Jesus Christ, the Savior. And Jesus Christ, the Savior, is going to save even David. This is what the psalmist means when it says, he calls the Lord his Lord. The Lord delights in David. The Lord God delights in David even, now think about this, even though he has a difficult past, and even though times are tough, now think about this for just a moment. Is it possible that the Lord could delight in you when things aren't going exactly the way that you would hope they would be going? God, how can you delight in me? I'm facing this situation. Lord, how can you delight in me? This is going wrong in my marriage. This is going wrong on the job. This is going wrong in, in my physical circumstance. This, this is going wrong in my spiritual circumstance. Lord, this is all of the wickedness I've done in the past. And this is all of this situation that I'm facing right now. How is it possible that you can delight in me? Now, let me just help you just for a moment. Those of you who are parents and those of you who are grandparents. Do you ever see, do you remember your children when they were tiny, tiny? Or do you remember your grandchildren when they were just a baby, baby? And you delight in them. You look at their little bald head and their toothless grin and their sparkling eyes. And this is what they're able to do. Eat and sleep and perform bodily functions. And you think, I'm delighted in them. Well, that's not a whole lot to be delighted in, is it? Eating, sleeping, no teeth, and bodily functions. How can they be so adorable? And the reason why they can be so adorable, and the reason why you can delight in them, you delight in them because they exist and they belong to you. They are flesh of your flesh and bone of your bone. And even if they're not flesh of your flesh and bone of your bone, God has placed them in your life to love them and be with them. And God delights in David because he made David and he loves David. So what does David sing? Again, the enemy confronts David in the day of calamity. The Lord delivers him. The Lord delights in him. David makes it clear that God sees and cares about what is happening in his life. And the Lord is our support and our security. He rescues us because he delights in us. Think about this for just a moment. David is singing, God delivers because God delights. Lord, why would you do this? I love you but I'm an evil, wicked sinner. I know. That's why I sent Jesus to die on the cross and be the savior of your sins and to reconcile you to myself so that we could have the basis of a friendship and fellowship and relationship. And then look what it says in verse 21. The Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands. He has recompensed me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his judgments were, were before me. And as for his statutes, I did not depart from them. I was also blameless before him. And I kept myself from my iniquity. I know what you're reading. You're thinking, this is proof positive that he, he had to have written it before the Bathsheba thing. How can he write that stuff with a straight face knowing what he's done? The text indicates that David could sing the song at the end of his life. How do we know? We look back to verse 1. 
Then David spoke to the Lord. He sang this song. How? How is that even possible? How do we explain this? My answer might shock you. It's found in the words of Nathan, the prophet. Do you remember in 2 Samuel chapter 12? If you go back 10 whole chapters, I know it's a lot of pages to turn, but look at chapter 12, verse 13. I don't normally have you read out loud. But everybody, on the count of three, read chapter 13. One, two, three. All right, I'll read it because you guys are just way too wimpy on the read. Verse 13. So David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, quote, the Lord also. The Lord also. The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Jesus says in John chapter 8, He whom the Lord sets free is free indeed. Jesus said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him wouldn't perish but have everlasting life. John wrote in 1 John chapter 1, he says, If you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. How do you explain it? Is the explanation just the simple explanation? David simply believed the words of the prophet Nathan were true when Nathan said, The Lord has put away your sin. Does he even dare, does he even dare believe that such a thing could possibly be true? That's the only explanation of why he could write such a thing. But even then, some people find it impossible to believe. Are you kidding me? Adultery? Murder? The prophet says the Lord has put away your sin and it is gone, gone, gone. But remember what we've already learned. Remember what we've already learned. Remember what I told you. Have there been enormous consequences to David's rebellion and disobedience? How can you call a dead baby? How can you call a sexually assaulted daughter? How can you call a murdered son? How can you call another rebellious son who results in the death of 50,000 people in the kingdom that that's no consequences? This is why I think it's so hard for some people to believe that Jesus can put away your sin, David's son. But that's the testimony of the Bible. 
The testimony of the Bible is that when you place your confidence in Jesus, when you believe the gospel, when you trust that his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead frees you, when, when you trust the words of Jesus, when he says, he whom the Son of God has set free is free indeed. Well, I'm still living in bondage. I don't feel free. I'm living in the, in the bondage of the past or the expectations of the present. David was a forgiven man. David was forgiven because God had forgiven David. David was cleansed because God cleansed David. David's hands were clean, not because, and listen carefully, not because they had never gotten dirty but because God cleansed his hands. How can you say you have a clean heart and how can you say you have a cleansed circumstance? How can you even say I've kept the ways of the Lord, that I was blameless before him? Because guess what? The New Testament says that sin, sinless and blameless are two different things. Is David claiming sinless perfection? I don't think so. What David is making reference to is his attitude towards God, his position that he's obtained from God, forgiveness and grace and mercy. And he's contrasting the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness that he's experienced with the rebellion and the wickedness of his enemies. I've been saved and I've been cleansed and I've been washed. That's what he's saying. Spurgeon put it this way. Before God, the man after God's own heart was a humble sinner. But before his slanderers, he could with unblushing face speak of the cleanness of his hands and the righteousness of his life. Now think about this. In the New Testament, in the book of Colossians, it speaks of, gosh, and I didn't write this down, so... On my notepad, so I'm not exactly sure what I'm looking for, but I will know it when I see it in the book of Colossians. Here's what it says. Colossians chapter 1, verse 22. In the body of his flesh through death. Well, I'm going to go back to verse 20. And by him to reconcile all things to himself, Jesus. By him, whether things on the earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he is reconciled. In verse 22, in Colossians 1:22, in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy, blameless, and above reproach in his sight. I don't feel holy. I don't feel blameless. And I don't feel above reproach. But you are holy. And you are blameless. And you are above reproach. Because God has chosen to see your circumstances under the lens of the sacrifice of the blood of Jesus. You're kidding me, right? No. We come to God in Christ, not on the basis of our own righteousness, but on the righteousness that's found in David's son. And when David comes to God and he sings the song that he sings, it isn't on the basis of his righteousness. 
but it's on the basis of what God has done in his life. We come to God on those very same basis. And Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 1.30 where he says, But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. In other words... Jesus becomes our wisdom and Jesus becomes to God righteousness, sanctification and redemption for us. He writes in 2 Corinthians 5.21, for he that is God made him that is Jesus who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might be the righteousness of God in him. That's why David couldn't sing the song in verse 24, I was also blameless before him. And I kept myself from my iniquity. It's not sanctified wishful thinking. Is David speaking from arrogance or pride? I don't think so. Again, Spurgeon explains the passage, quote, Yet we know there is a certainly a sense in which we keep ourselves from sin, even as Paul spoke of a man cleansing himself for God's glory and for greater service. Blameless doesn't mean sinless. The idea being, did he, does he keep himself in a perfect way? No. But even in an imperfect way, he goes, look, Based on what God has done for me, I'm going to love him and serve him and obey him. That's the point. We don't love him and serve him and obey him to make God have warm, fuzzy thoughts about us. We love him and serve him and obey him because he loves us. And he's demonstrated his love already by sending Jesus to die. And so in verse 26... We go from God's protection and God's power and God's provision to God's perfect justice. Look what it says in verse 26. With the merciful, you will show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you will show yourself blameless. Now remember, Jesus taught, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. David experiences the mercy of God, but David also demonstrates mercy. To people like Saul. Remember as we've looked at the life and times of David. When Saul found himself in the cave. And he's got his robe hiked up. And he's going. There's David with a dagger. And he slices a little bit of Saul's robe. And Saul goes back out. And David holds up the slice of the robe. I had an opportunity to kill you. I know I'm your enemy, but you're not my enemy. I mean you no harm. I'm not here to judge what God may or may not be doing in your life. I'm not here to take your throne. If God's going to make me king, God's going to have to do it on his own terms. But in the meantime, I can't necessarily ask you to love me, but please don't kill me. David demonstrated mercy to Shimei. Do you remember in 2 Samuel chapter 16? Bad David, bad king, evil, hiss, boo, you're a bad king, you're a bad king. And and remember one of David's men said, let me go cut that guy's head off. And David said, who knows but that God has sent him to speak to me. Spurgeon points out that even the merciful need mercy. Spurgeon writes, no amount of generosity to the poor or forgiveness to enemies can set us beyond the need of mercy. 
Think about that for just a moment. If the only reason to exercise mercy was so that you could receive mercy, it, that would be enough. With a blameless man, you will show yourself blameless. Remember, blameless isn't sinless. It just means holding an excellent reputation in the community. And in verse 27, with the pure, you will also show yourself pure. Doesn't that sound like David's son? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Why do the pure in heart see God? Because they can't see anything else. And with the devious, you will show yourself shrewd. What in the world does that mean? Well, now think. If a man is pure towards God, God will be pure towards him. But God is incapable of wickedness. So if human beings are wicked towards God, will God be wicked towards human beings? What do you think the answer is? The answer is no. God will never be wicked. God will always be just. God will always be fair. I'm going to ask you an important question. Is God capable of wickedness? The answer is no. Is, the God, is God capable of evil? The answer is no. Remember the book of James says there's no evil. There's no darkness. There's no shadow of turning. God is absolutely pure and just. And so God will always be just. James Montgomery Boyce puts it this way. David expresses the second half of the parallel by a somewhat ambiguous word, the root meaning of which is twisted. The verse actually says, to the twisted or the crooked. The idea seems to be that if a person insists on being devious in dealing with God, God will outwit him. Are there people who think that they're smarter than God? Or they're more clever than God? Or that they will find a loophole in the Bible. Or they will find a loophole in heaven. They'll go, hey, you know, I know that the Bible says that you're the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by you. I know that the Bible says that Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And also that he said that all judgment is given to Jesus and that apart from Jesus, no one is going to have life or love. No one is going to experience eternal life. But there's got to be a catch. There's got to be a loophole. There's got to be for me a way to retain my sin and selfishness and not have to embrace Christ. Do you think the person will find the loophole? The person will not. The person who thinks that they're more clever than God or they're more just than God or that they're more righteous than God, they're going to find out something. That in the end, they were only fooling themselves. God is just. That's the point. He says, you will save the humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty that you may bring them down. So why does it surprise us that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble? By the way, does God resist the proud and give grace to the humble? In Proverbs 3.34, it says he resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. In James 4.6, it says he resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5, it says he resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. How many times does the scripture have to repeat it before you go, hey, I'm going to go with he resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. 
By the way, there's something about genuine humility that prompts the heart of God. Genuine humility creates a mechanism inside of the heart of God where he goes, I want to be merciful to you. Lord, I'm a sinner in need of a savior. I want to be merciful to you. Lord, I'm empty. I want to be your provision. Lord, I have nothing to depend upon. I want to be the source. Lord, I I don't feel safe. I want to protect you. Lord, I feel helpless. I'll be your power. Lord, I have nothing. I will be your provision. God is just. God will reward the righteous and punish the wicked. And if a person is merciful, God will be merciful. If a person is blameless, the Lord will be blameless towards that person. If a person is pure in heart, God will be pure towards them. If a person is wicked or hostile or devious or shrewd, then God will outwit that person. And if the person is proud, God says, I'm going to bring you down. Justice is the law of sowing and reaping. Justice is being measured what's been measured to you. And so it ends with God's proven dependability. Look what it says. For you are my lamp, O Lord. The Lord shall enlighten my darkness. Now David is going to introduce another great big theme. When the days are dark, God is our light. And so that's the point. In order to meet David's need, God will have to bring David light. And by the way, God doesn't always allow us to see everything that we want to see. The Lord brings light. And usually it's a light that's sufficient for the day. It's sufficient for the circumstance that you're facing. And you go, the Lord gives you the light so that you can see clearly what you need to do today. And I know what some of you think, but I need light to see into tomorrow and next week. I need to know if the stock market's going up or I need to know if the stock market's going down. I need to know if Iran is going to invade Israel. I need to know if there's going to be a nuclear response in Syria. I need to know if we're all going to hell in a handbasket. No, you don't. Here's what you need to know. You need to know exactly what God wants you to know today. The Bible says sufficient to the day is the evil thereof and that tomorrow will take care of itself. One of the reasons why I think God does that may or may not be a reason that you like. I think one of the reasons is because he wants you to trust him today. Does that make sense to you? I need you to trust me today for today. And by the way, I think that there's another reason why he does that. To avoid an argument. If God revealed the future to you and you go, okay, thank you, Lord, for revealing the future to me. Let's talk about that. Do you think the Lord reveals the future to you so that you can debate the subject with God? I don't think so. The Lord always gives us enough light in order to order our next step. Charles Allen wrote something interesting. He said, quote, when a person is suddenly alone, Often panic and fear come. I distinctly remember my mother saying to me after my father's death, I can't go on without him. I depended on him for everything. My mother, 
believed that, but she did go on without him. In fact, she lived 25 wonderful years after my father died. I remember that one of the things that bothered my mother was that she couldn't drive a car. She learned that she could live without driving a car. I felt the most creative years of my mother's life were the years that she was forced to depend on herself. She had her anxious moments, but somewhere along the way, she learned the old expression, life by the yard is hard, but life by the inch, it's a cinch. (laughs) You're my lamp, Lord. You give me the exact amount of light to see what I need to see. Verse 30, for you, I can run against a troop. It's supernatural strength. By my God, I can leap over a wall. He means a city wall. This is the first reference to Superman in the Bible. No, that's not what it means at all. Verse 31, as for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is proven. He is a shield to all who trust him. Think about that for just a moment. For As for God, his way is perfect. What does that mean? It's been tested and it's passed the test. Now think about that. We sang it earlier in worship. God's way is perfect. What does that mean? The way God prescribes, the simple, absolute way of duty, of holy duty, the way God prescribes the Bible. In other words, the way God prescribes is perfect. And what is the way that God prescribes? Jesus. Come to Jesus. Believe in Jesus. Receive Jesus. Embrace Christ. Walk in the way of Christ. In verse 32 it says, For who is God except the Lord? And who is a rock except for our God? Now think about that. If Jesus is the way, as for God, his way is perfect. We should contrast that with the way of man. Is the way of man perfect? Is the way of human wisdom perfect? Is the way of fallen passion perfect? By the way, how is the way of pride going? Will the way of pride lead you to life? Will the way of independence from God lead to salvation from your enemies? David isn't trusting his power and he isn't trusting his position and he isn't trusting his identity and he isn't trusting his self-esteem. He doesn't even pretend to have strength. For who is God except the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? David's conclusion? No one and nothing. By the way, God's deliverance, God's unfailing love, God's unfailing security, God's open ear, God's strong arm, the resources of God can be trusted. By the way, at the end of this, David will rejoice and extol the strength and victory given by God. And at the end of this chapter, the chapter is devoted to David's worship. That's the right response when you've been delivered. God's protection, God's power, God's provision, God's justice, God's dependability. Why would you trust anything else? Why would you trust anyone else? 
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this time and this passage. Lord, we pray that it would be water to our soul. Lord, that it would be nourishment inside of us. Lord, I pray for that person who foolishly and wickedly has decided to trust something other than you. Lord, I pray that they would see how foolish and how wrong that is. Lord, I pray that they would cry out to you for your protection and power and provision and for your justice. But perhaps, Lord, they're afraid to even pray that prayer. They're afraid of what they might get. Judgment instead of mercy. Condemnation instead of forgiveness. Judgment instead of hope. But Lord, we know, we know that you're close to the people who are humble. You said a broken and a contrite heart you will not despise. And so Lord, I pray that the sacrifice of a broken and a contrite heart would be acceptable to you. Lord, I pray that for that person who says, I'm so sick of my sin and I'm so sick of my life. I want forgiveness and I want hope. I want grace and I want mercy. I want to be delivered from the most wicked and the most pernicious enemy of my soul, my own sin. Lord, I pray that they would cry out to you. Lord, I pray that they would embrace Jesus as the satisfying solution to that problem of sin. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand. You plan the perfect ends. You use the perfect means. You hold the perfect